We knew for a long time that uh, the service was going to to use um, Kurt Vonnegut as its guiding star because uh, Friday, Veterans Day, as Brian said, was the centennial of Vonnegut's birth. He died several years ago. Appropriate that he was born on Veterans Day, although, of course, he couldn't know when he was born on Armistice Day in 1922 that he would, less than 20 years later, be a soldier. But he went off to World War II and had uh, the grueling experience there of being in Dresden on the night that Allied bombers succeeded in something they had been trying to do and created a firestorm over the city. Fire so complete that almost everybody and everyone on the surface was turned to charcoal and ash and that even those in bomb shelters were asphyxiated because the oxygen was sucked up to feed the fire. That's where he was. He was one of a small number of people to survive that experience. And then he was one of the core of people whose job it was to help identify some of the remains of the approximately 100,000 Dresden residents who had died on the surface. If you have read only one thing by Kurt Vonnegut Jr., it's probably Slaughterhouse-Five. I had to read it in school. I recommend it. It um, is his account, in some ways, of that night, of what might happen as we experience or face horrors, cruelties, absurdities, the randomness of life that we see in something like these acts of war. I think that Vonnegut is is a prophet for our times and for us for communities like ours. He wasn't a Unitarian Universalist. He was a fellow traveler, um, such a prominent and outspoken humanist that he was, uh, for some years, the, um, uh, what's, what's the word for? Honor, thank you, honorary. I'm a little scattered this morning. The honorary, it's, this is why we have our worship associates say that It was purely honorary. He didn't have to do any work. Although it did mean that one of the things he did was eulogize for the AHA um, their previous honorary chairman, Isaac Asimov. It was very much Vonnegut's way to, um, to respond, not only with great seriousness, but with great humor, with satire and wit, 
and an acerbic attitude, but never a cynical one to respond to the pains of life. Um, and he wasn't shy about using religious language, sometimes satirically and sometimes quite seriously, as when he said in all seriousness that he thought the Sermon on the Mount was one of the greatest gifts that humanity ever gave to itself. Jesus, one of our greatest figures. He was known to invent an entire religion in one of his um, novels, one I hate to even recommend to you because you might leave Unitarian Universalism and become a Baconinist. So I won't tell you the name of the book. You'll have to just hunt through and find it yourself. Um, in any case, uh, to demonstrate some of his, his um, humor about being a humanist, when he eulogized um, Asimov to the, to the um, American Humanist Association, he began his remarks by saying, Isaac is in heaven now. Oh, he was so pleased with himself. He said they were rolling in the aisles. Because, of course, neither Asimov nor he nor anybody gathered there thought that that was where Asimov was. But he said, you go right ahead. I think it's a good line. So after I die, say, Kurt is in heaven now. Say it right now. Kurt is in heaven now. And, um, and laughing, no doubt. For him, being a humanist meant he didn't believe that this whole beautiful, messy, random world, or any world, was under the control of any mighty being. And they also believed that this life, 100 years or so at the outside, this is all we've got. So he would probably laugh as well to be called a prophet, and no doubt reject the label, but I mean it. His prophecy, of course, was carried out through, um, I, I don't mean in terms of predicting the future, I mean in terms of holding up for us possibilities. Looking at the way wor the, life, the world is and suggesting ways we might respond to it. His way of doing that was through words, although he didn't become a novelist until he was 50 years old. That's when his first book was published, and he published a few dozen before he was done. And so he shows, through the language of novels, ways that we might respond. Namely, he shows the way characters respond to this world. Show us some possibilities of what are we to do faced with a Dresden, with nuclear weapons, with environmental destruction, with a country that holds so much promise and fails to live up to its ideals so often, with Events like this week's election, which while perhaps being more hope, hopeful than, than many people feared, still leaves us afraid for the future of our democracy, of human rights, of this planet. 
gives us ways as well to respond to things closer to home as when one among us, somebody we care about and love, is on the border between life and death. So here's just a few ways that his many, many, a few of his many, many characters respond. Uh, perhaps the closest thing that he had to an alter ego, the young soldier who is the central character of Slaughterhouse-Five, Billy Pilgrim, is in, in, in uh, Dresden. And what happens to him is that he becomes unstuck in time. Now, if you read the whole novel, you'll know that that's not entirely a curse. It's a gift, in fact, that allows this young, traumatized man to see a truth about human life that we who are stuck in time, proceeding one second at a time in order, can't see. Nevertheless, it's clear that this unsticking, this becoming unmoored, is, is strange and painful and confusing, and that to any outside observer, what it means is that Billy Pilgrim has gone insane. He's lost his mind. He's lost touch with reality. That is, of course, one of the things that may happen to us when we view this world, this life that we have and particularly its difficulties. There's another character <clears throat> in another book who responds by saying, in effect, with his actions, well, if there's nobody in charge of this whole thing, if there's no divine guidance about how we are to live, if all we do is live out our short lives on this fragile planet and then go to dust, then what is the meaning of anything? He embraces nihilism. And Vonnegut is very clear from the way his narrator responds and what this nihilist does, that that is not a path that he wants any of us to take. The nihilist wrecks his friends, the narrator's house, he kills his pet. He, nothing, nothing means anything and so he says he doesn't have to take any responsibility for anything he does. That's one response to the randomness, the absurdity, the pain of life that we get to see through his characters. And another way is a way shown by an artist in another of his novels. I'm not saying all the names because I, I don't want to give you any spoilers. <clears throat> um, this artist is a young man who is extremely capable of, of rendering anything, rendering in, in drawing something so that it was almost indistinguishable from real life, indistinguishable from a photograph, a great gift. And Yet he felt and was told by others he revered that he was not an artist, he had, no, he had no soul, he had nothing to say with this great talent. 
And between that and other events of his life, he felt himself to be a, a laughing stock and a failure. And then he too, um, being of that generation, went to World War II. And although he was comparatively unscathed, at the very end of the war, he had an amazing experience as, as people were in the, in the messy chaos of liberation, final battles, transports of soldiers here and there. He had this amazing experience of being above this valley of thousands of people. And finally, his response to his experiences there, his response to being alive in this difficult world was to paint a portrait of 10,000 people minutely and giving in his mind a story to every single one. Some stories he knew from having been there. Like the story of somebody just liberated from a concentration camp, starving, bewildered, devastated, and free in this valley of 10,000. The Canadian bombardier who was injured and afraid and wondering if he would make it home. The, the women in the, in the root cellar picking over potatoes and other root vegetables and knowing that as waves of soldiers, possibly enemy soldiers, came through their town, what awaited them on the surface was rape and ruin. And a portrait as well of a German soldier who suddenly, as the camp uh, at which he had been enslaving people, was liberated by the Allies, had fled, and was now awaiting who knows what kind of justice at the hands of Allied soldiers who were coming, or the people there in this valley with him. He gave portraits like this to every figure. <clears throat> and the way this massive painting looked from a distance, these portraits of 10,000 people, was it looked like a field of shimmering jewels. This artist's response was to notice and relate the stories of these kindred human beings, which is to say, as I read the book, us, all of us, we're all there. Suffering and hoping and dreaming and daring and asking for our stories to be told. 
I call him a prophet because I think that he calls us by his example not to ignore the evils that surround us or that we do or that we suffer, that we witness, not to ignore suffering, but to find ways to respond. that will make meaning and a better world, a better life out of our engagement with this, this difficult, um, these difficult things we witness. I wanted to, to say in this sermon, I wanted to give us time to look around, a la Uncle Alex, Alex Vonnegut, and say, if this isn't nice, what is? I'm not totally feeling it right now. It's not always the moment to say that. But along with, with Kurt Vonnegut, I encourage you to do it when you're noticing that life is going sweetly or peacefully because it's true. It's true even in our moments of sorrow, which are always with us, sometimes very close to home, as they are for us today, and sometimes just in the newspaper or whatever we know is happening somewhere in the world. And it's important if we are to live fully and well to nevertheless look around and say to ourselves, say out loud, if this isn't nice, what is? That's part of his response. I also want to note communities like ours, Unitarian Universalist communities, that we count on to help us to respond to what we see in this world, to help us to engage. They get a lot of, um, they get a lot of challenge from those opposed to humanism. The opponents of humanism, those of more traditional, for lack of a better word, faiths, for example, they may look at a community like ours and say, what good is it? You don't, some of you may, but you don't all as a whole worship someone who is going to guide you and get you through and give meaning to your lives. You don't believe that, or most of you don't, some of you don't, that anything follows after this. What meaning is there in a life that just goes for, at the outside, about a hundred years, and then foot. What good does it do? How can you even call yourselves a spiritual community or a religious community if you don't believe those things as one? And then we get some pushback from the humanist side as well. 
from people who say, if you say you don't believe in those things, if that's not what holds you together, why are you doing this? What is the use of ritual? What is the use of coming together and singing these songs and holding up these stories from ancient traditions, these strange metaphors that you call metaphors but that somebody somewhere believes in literally? How can you even make this work or why bother when some of you believe such different things from one another that you may think someone else's beliefs are nonsensical and someone else's beliefs are arid. How can you even respond? How can you even engage with this world? And that's why even why it would make him laugh, or maybe because it would make him laugh, I say, Vonnegut is a prophet for us. Because he says, make these communities. Make the kind of communities that will help you to find out two things. What we see in the portrait, the portrait of ourselves, of 10,000 people at a time of crisis, a time of worldwide crisis, as well as a trauma in the life of every single person there. It's like he is saying to us, here's what you need to do. Here's what your communities need to do, help you do. To see everybody and to recognize there that we, all of us, each of us, matter. That we matter. That we shine like a field of jewels. And to realize that what we do matters. Which is why this self-proclaimed humanist This person who didn't believe that anyone's in charge or anything continues, who made a joke of the idea that he is in heaven now, who surely did not believe that there was anything written down for us to live by, nevertheless put in the mouth of one of his characters this idea that there's a rule, just one rule. God damn it, you've got to be kind. Because if we matter, and every jewel in that shimmering field matters, and it matters what we do, then we've got to be kind. That's what we've got. It may be all we've got, or who knows. Maybe something continues after this life. Maybe something matters to a greater being. But what we know we have is one another right here. All the beings of this fragile planet. They matter. We matter. And it matters what we do. He probably wouldn't mind this word. 
I know some of you do, and it might make some of the people at the American Humanist Association roll in the aisles. But as I say, one of the reasons he's a prophet to my soul is that he wasn't afraid of religious language. So I will say that what he is telling us is that what we do here is sacred because we are sacred. What we do for and to and with the rest of this world, it matters so deeply that it is sacred too. So, with thanks to our prophet, all our prophets, all who teach us something about how to face the tragedy and comedy and mess and absurdity and beauty and wonder that it is this life, with gratitude to all of you and all of them everywhere, I say blessed be. <laughs>